Good morning, everybody. I'm Susan Johnson, and our text for today is from Luke 18, 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Good morning again, everybody. Thank you, Susan. Thank you, Tyson. Uh, Hey, uh, kids are in here this morning as well. Hi, kids. Glad you're in here. Give me a four-fingered wave. Could you? Just four. Just four. Not all five. Thank you. Thank you, David Courtney. All right. Uh, Hey, so we are in the series on the parables of Jesus. And these are these stories that Jesus told. Uh, to teach us what God was like, what God's kingdom is like, what we are like as people, and how to live a God-soaked life as we follow him through this life. And the story today, the story that Susan just read for us, is a story about humility and pride, about humility and pride, and what it looks like to live in humility, and how we can grow in this virtue. And I'm sure you'll agree with me here, but humility is such a valuable Virtue. I think sometimes maybe it's, it's underrated, uh, it's so valuable, it's notoriously difficult to cultivate in our lives as well. Uh, a friend of mine likes to joke that he's going to write a book someday called Perfect Humility and How I Achieved It. <laughs> right? And um, it's a great title because it, it shows the difficulty. Pride is such an insidious sin. It has such a sneaky quality to it, that, <laughs> such that even if we were to get really, really, really good at humility, we might end up being prideful about how good we are at humility and slip back into it. So it's kind of sneaky and slippery in that way. But think about this. I bet if you think about the people that you most enjoy being around, right? Not necessarily the people that you have to be around, right? But the people that if you're just choosing, who do I want to spend time with? Who do I enjoy? Uh, I would be willing to bet that humility is one of the qualities that makes that person a person that you enjoy being with. It might not come up first in your mind, but I would suggest it is probably in there because humility lends itself to so many other things. Like, think about this. For a person who is humble, usually something that you find about that person is that they are curious, right? They have this curiosity because they know that they don't know everything. And so they're curious, and they're, they ask interesting questions, and they're teachable. They want to understand. They want to know. Uh, it doesn't diminish them to look for answers outside of themselves. This is something that humility brings us when it's, it's part of our life. Uh, graciousness. 
is often something that accompanies humility, right? If you are a humble person, that means you probably are better able to see your own faults. And when you're able to better see your own faults, you deal with other people's faults a little more generously, don't you? This comes from humility. Uh, there's less need to judge others. If you've got a person in your life who is a humble person, I would, I would bet that they are a good listener because they don't need it to all be about them. They want to know about you. This, like there's no downside to humility. There are so many good things that flow out of this for us. And we want this, don't we? I mean, this is good stuff. We want this in our life. And the converse is true as well. Like pride is one of those things that everybody deals with and nobody wants, right? Nobody wants to deal with this. And the thing about pride, this really, this kills us, I think. But pride is one of those things where often other people see it before you do, right? It's kind of the spinach in the teeth of the spiritual life where it's there and the other person's staring at it and they see it. And then maybe eventually you come to find out that it's there. And in this parable in particular, we're, we're kind of drilling down on one particular sort of pride. Sometimes we call it self-righteousness. And this is the kind of pride that looks at oneself morally or spiritually and elevates oneself above other people. And kind of like what we talked about last week with envy, this is one of those things where it's like, ah, oh, this is so gross. I don't want this to be part of my life. Yet it's something that, that all of us deal with. And I love how the scriptures just go right there. Jesus goes right into our mess and says, okay, even that thing that just embarrasses you and you don't want to admit that you sometimes deal with that, he says, I'm, I'm going to deal with that. Because God's aim, friends, God's aim is to make you and I into people who look like Jesus. That is the end result of our faith. Not heaven after we die. I mean, that happens. But it's, it's very much about the kind of people that we're going to be when we show up there. The work that God is doing in us, in transforming us into the likeness of his son, as Paul puts it in Romans. So, uh, so this morning, how can we cultivate humility? Right? There's no formula. This is a lifelong process. But how can we lean into God's work in us in this? How can we cultivate humility? and diminish the grip that self-righteousness sometimes has on us. And this story, the story we're looking at, Jesus has given us a master class in what pride and self-righteousness look like. And we're going to look this morning at three characteristics of pride so we can better recognize when we're slipping into it. And with that, we'll look at three practices, three spiritual disciplines that we can incorporate uh, that will help us uh, to, to replace that with a, a heart-level humility as well. So let's pray, and we'll look at the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning hungry, uh, eager to have you working in our lives in such a way that what you want for us, that the good that you intend for us would be realized. And God, we pray that those places in us that get in your way, we pray that you would bring this to the surface. We pray that your Holy Spirit would work in us in such a way that we would have eyes to see the faults that you would correct. And God, we pray that this would not be in our own power. We pray that that same spirit that graciously convicts us of sin would empower us to live a more Jesus-like life. 
So God, speak to our hearts through your word, by your spirit. We trust you for this and we give you thanks for it. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so back in verse 9, the parable begins with this. It says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Pause right there because it sounds like the beginning of a delicious joke, doesn't it? Right? A tax man and a Pharisee walked into a bar. Add a couple more and you've got the, got the recipe for a good joke. But uh, read here as we identify the characters. Read tax man equals notorious sinner. Right? Many of you know this, but the tax collector was probably the most hated person in ancient Israel. Uh, Israel was an occupied country. Roman soldiers roamed their streets with impunity. Uh, there was virtually no accountability for the quote-unquote police force, the Roman police, and they did as they pleased, and it was not pretty. And there was no good legal recourse because the Jewish, the is Israeli government officials had been replaced by Roman officials and a puppet government set up there. So Rome was hated. And the tax collectors, they were Jewish men who worked for the Roman government collecting taxes and got rich in the process. The way the arrangement worked was basically they worked on commission. They collected the amount of taxes that Rome said they could collect and that amount was exorbitant and then they could take whatever else they wanted and that became their salary. So you can imagine, these were not popular people. Taxman is the most despised class of sinner in ancient Palestine. Uh, then there's the Pharisee. And the Pharisee, now when you hear Pharisee in the scriptures, what you need to hear is, this is a good religious person. And we forget this, because especially if you've been in the church a long time, and you've read through the Gospels, the Pharisees are usually kind of the bad guy. But we have to remember, these were the pastors these were the theologians. These were the regular churchgoers. When we read Pharisee in the scriptures, what we need to hear is, this is what I am in danger of becoming. Friends, there are certain sins that we are prone to as irreligious people, and then there's a whole other category of sins that we are prone to as religious people. And the Pharisees in the scripture, they remind us of this, and Jesus uses them in the story to remind us this is a danger, not for everybody, but for, uh, well, for everybody, but for those in particular who consider themselves religious. He's talking to you and I. Uh, now, the, the passage continues, and we'll throw this out as, as this first aspect of what pride looks like, how it develops in our lives, and it's this. It's that self-righteousness thrives on comparison. Self-righteousness, the food that it lives off of, is comparison. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. So pause there. Right? Picture the scene. Uh, the Pharisee, he waltzes in, he stands up, confidently prays to God. And the content of that prayer 
is kind of himself. He prays, thank you, God, for me. Thank you that I am not like those real sinners, the ones I see as I'm looking around this place. And how does he do this? How does one maintain that sort of self-righteousness? And the answer that we find here in the story is that he chooses certain sins that he does not struggle with. Sins that are not his own, but sins that belong to another person. And he makes these the measure of what a good person is and what a bad person is. Right? You see this? He looks around. He says to himself, thank you that I'm not a robber, an adulterer, an evildoer. And this, this word, it's, it was sort of a catch-all uh, in, in the ancient language here for, uh, for evil in general. But especially it's used for those who are dishonest, those who are in sexual sin, those who fail to practice justice. He says, thank you I'm not like them. And thank you I'm not like this tax collector. And note this, because it, it's important to the story. Note that nowhere here does the Pharisee deny that he is a sinner. Nowhere does he say, thank you, God, that I am sinless. He says, thank you that I'm not like them. Because in his mind, their sins, those are the bad ones. Those are the ones that make you a bad person. His sins, well, they're of a, a different category, apparently. Uh, Winston Churchill once said, I know that all men are worms, but I believe that I am a glowworm. <laughs> that is the spirit of the Pharisee. That is the spirit of self-righteousness. Doesn't go so far as to say, I don't have any sin. That's too obvious, right? That's too easy. We, we explode that myth really quick. But it says, my sin isn't as bad as that person's sin. That's the bad stuff. Mine's just, you know, just sort of normal. And friends, think about this. Uh, I imagine it's, it's this way with you too, but I find I am and we are incredibly quick to go there. Uh, to, here's how sometimes it, it works in our internal dialogue, right? So yeah, I really blew it. But hey, at least I've never, and then fill in the blank. With virtually anything, right? Anything that's not a struggle for you, you can put in that blank and you feel just a little bit better. It's like, oh, oh, good. Well, I may be a screw up, but I'm not that kind of screw up, right? We go there super quick. It's a very clever defense mechanism that we have. Find somebody who's worse and then compare ourselves to them. And here's the thing too. So it always works for us because no matter what you've done, you can always find somebody who did something worse. Right? You, I mean, everyone can play this game. Charles Manson can play this game. He can be like, well, I did some things, but I'm no Jeffrey Dahmer. Right? <laughs> Hitler can do this. Hitler can be like, yeah, okay, I'm a bad guy, but look at Stalin. He was terrible. And then Stalin can be like, yeah, I was terrible, but look at Pol Pot. And I'm not sure who he looks at, but he'll find somebody. We always do. It's too easy for us to go there. And, and how about this? Can we do this as a church? Can we maybe just kind of for ourselves ban the words, at least I've never, and fill in the blank? Because it's a dodge. 
It's a way for us to stay in our own self-righteousness instead of dealing with the things that God would want to deal with in us. Self-righteousness looks at the other and it says, okay, the difference between a big sin and a little sin is simply this. A big sin is your sin. A little sin is my sin. And Jesus tells this story to say, no, no, no. That's not how it works. Here's another way that sometimes this breaks down for us. So uh, John Ortberg, who, who has some wonderful stuff on this passage, uh, he tells us it's common in, in our minds, if not in our speech, to divide sins into a couple of different categories. Right? We have, on the one hand, sins of the flesh, and then on the other hand, sins of the spirit. Sins of the flesh, uh, this would uh, primarily involve sin that, that involves our bodily appetites. Right? So we would, we would take something there like sleeping with somebody that we're not married to or lying or getting drunk or cheating on our taxes. We'd say, okay, these are sins of the flesh. They have, uh, they, uh, they're all about the body. Sins of the spirit, they have more to do with the soul. And these are things like having a superior attitude when we look at other people. Things like being judgmental impatience, resenting other people, lack of forgiveness, lack of loving action. These some would term as sins of the spirit rather than sins of the flesh. And sometimes we do this thing either consciously or unconsciously where we say, okay, those things are not as big a deal as the sins that take place in my body. If it's a sin in my mind, if it's a sin in my spirit, it's not as big of a deal, right? They're not as colorful, they're not as juicy. They don't promote as much gossip, which is another sin of the spirit, yeah? Uh, and Jesus explodes that. In his grace, says to us, no, no, no. That's not the way it works. That's not the standard. C.S. Lewis wrote about this too. He put it this way. He said, the sins of the flesh are bad but they're the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting. The pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and the diabolical self. That's his flesh and his spirit. The diabolical self is the worst of the two and that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither. Right? Go see us, Lewis. Now, by contrast, what are the categories that Jesus gives us? What do we see in this story? Right, we've got two sinners. And the categories aren't based on what kind of sin. We have sinners who admit it, and we have sinners who don't. That becomes the primary distinguishing factor between the self-righteous and the one who lives in God's forgiveness. Now, how do we get away from this? How do we get away from this practice we have, this sometimes unconscious way of categorizing ourselves and comparing ourselves to others and basing our righteousness on that? Well, here's a practice for us, and it'll be familiar to any of you who have been around here long. 
but the practice is the daily confession of sin. Making part of our daily habit, making time of, uh, part of our time with God on the daily regular, coming to God and asking him to search our hearts and our minds and to surface in us those areas where we need to be forgiven. Uh, here's the beauty of this exercise. Every day you will have something. Every day there will be something that you can say, God, I blew it there, and I'm sorry. Forgive me. And what this does, in addition to keeping a clean slate with God, it keeps our eyes where they need to be in terms of what the standard is. Because, you see, the standard of righteousness is never how I'm doing in comparison with my neighbor. My neighbor's walk with God or lack thereof is between he or she and God. The standard is always God and his revealed word and the life that he would call us to in following Jesus. The daily confession of sin keeps our eyes where they need to be, focused on him and what he would have for us. Uh, that's one. Self-righteousness thrives on comparison. The second is this. It's that self-righteousness parades its accomplishments. Parades its accomplishments. Look at the second part of the prayer that the Pharisee prays. It says again, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, this tax collector. But in contrast, he says, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So as we noted, part of the prayer is, thank you, God, I'm not like that person. The other part of the prayer is, God, check out my resume. Check me out. These are the things that I am doing. He says, God, I go above and beyond. Right? I fast twice a week, fasting, a common spiritual practice in that time. And Jesus' followers, they fasted as well. I think it's a great practice for you and I. But there is no requirement on how much, how often. Pharisees, it was a practice, twice a week. Check the box, that goes on the resume. And he says, hey, and I tithe. I give a tenth of all I get. There's a place in Matthew 23 where Jesus is talking about the Pharisees again. And in that one, he says, you are meticulous in your giving. You go out to your garden, right? Because we're thinking here in, in that day, agrarian culture, not just, uh, not just money, but your, your goods, whatever it is that you raise, you know, your you're, you're given one-tenth of your chickens or one-tenth of your produce. He says, you go into your garden and into the mint section, the herbs, and you, you pick one out of every ten leaves off of your dill plants and off of your mint plants, and you give that to God. He says, you're meticulous in your tithing, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, righteousness. And you see how we do this? How the one can become a dodge for the others? Self-righteousness parades its accomplishments because we feel if we are able to present God with this great array of what it is that we are doing right, that maybe that diminishes what it is that we're doing wrong. And it allows us to keep the smug sense of superiority where we can see ourselves in a certain light and look down on others. It's so gross, isn't it? Like, none of, us, none of us want to do that. But we need to be real about the struggle that exists in each of us to fall into these kinds of patterns. And friend, Jesus 
wants to free you from those kinds of patterns. Self-righteousness parades its accomplishments. Now, take these first two together, right? Comparison and then the accomplishments. And note what the Pharisee does. This is another, I think, sort of defense mechanism for us. But first, he takes that other person's worst, right? Whatever he thinks he knows about that person, that they're an adulterer, an evildoer, da-da-da, takes their worst and then compares it with his best. It's not even going apples to apples, right? It's not even a matter of saying, these are his sins, and my, those are awful, and these are my sins, and they're maybe not as bad. It's like, these are their sins, and these are my goods. And comparing those. And self-righteousness thrives on this. Take this back, if you would, to the beginning of Genesis. To this picture we have of Adam and Eve in the garden. And they sin. And all of a sudden they realize they're naked and they are ashamed. And what's the first thing that they do? They look for something to cover themselves. Right? They begin to, to take leaves and to cover themselves up because they're experiencing this sense of shame. And friends, I would say you and I do the same thing. We take our accomplishments and we sew them together as fig leaves and we use those to cover those parts of ourselves that we would find shameful. We hide behind our accomplishments as a way of protecting ourselves from facing those parts that we don't want to face. And again, this is a game we, we all can play. We can all find a fig leaf to hide behind. We just take something where we shine and we'll hold that up and say, okay, look at this, everybody. And don't look past it. I don't want you to see the rest of me. Just this thing that I hold up. Right? This is the whole premise behind Instagram, <laughs> right? And social media in general. But even outside of that, we don't need this. Uh, here's how it works for me. Um, so growing up, uh, I, was, I was really timid, I was really small, weak, no athletic prowess whatsoever. I so envied those kids who played sports and were good at it. So envied kids who were you know, the good-looking ones, the popular ones, all these things. It was never me. Uh, but I was the smart kid. That's, that's who I was in school. I, I discovered in kindergarten. Like I, I, I remember the day when no one else in class could answer a question and the teacher turned to me and said, do you know the answer? And I did. And every day after that, all my classmates would turn to me when they were stumped. And I became the smart kid. And, uh, and I hid behind that. That's all I had. And I, I would parade that out there. That's all I wanted people to see. And I felt like if I made that big enough, maybe people wouldn't see my weakness and they wouldn't see how scared I was and they wouldn't see all that I didn't want them to see. And I grew up with that. And I grew up painfully insecure, still deal with insecurity. And I tell you what, to this day, when I feel insecure, my temptation is to hide behind something that I know, or hide behind a degree, or a title, or an accomplishment. That's still the fig leaf that I reach for. 
That's my temptation. What is it for you? What is it you reach for when you're feeling insecure? Your good looks, your accomplishments, your successful career, your money, your athletic prowess, your brains. What is it you reach for? Friends, in our insecurity, we, we learn so much in this. If we pay attention to our hearts in this, we learn so much. In our insecurity, what is that thing that you parade when you're feeling shame and you want others to see that thing, not what's hiding behind it? That feeds our self-righteousness. This is part of how we get stuck in that as we parade our accomplishments before others. Uh, in contrast, humility makes no claims on God or on other people. Compare in the latter part of the parable, the tax collector. His response as opposed to the Pharisee, it says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Even his stance, even his posture, compared with the Pharisee, it, it, it tells something here. He knew who he was to the extent that he knew that, that he needed God's grace. That there was sin in his life that he could not escape by simply holding up what he wanted the world to see and telling him, look at this instead. No. He had to deal with who he was and what he had done in the presence of God. And the irony, of course, is that once he was able to come to grips with the fact that God owes him nothing, that his accomplishments don't buy him anything, then he stands in a place where Jesus can exclaim, this man is the one who went home justified before God. Pride, self-righteousness parades its accomplishments. Humility makes no claims on God. How do we grow in this? How do we get past reaching for that fig leaf? Here's one practice, one spiritual discipline. It's pray the Jesus prayer. Have you heard of this? Pray the Jesus prayer. And it, this is a prayer that's been practiced throughout church history. It actually comes out of this passage. But the prayer is simply this. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, the monks had a practice they called breath prayers. And the way it works is, is in an effort to try to pray throughout your day as much as you possibly can, they would match their prayer with their breathing. So on each inhale and on each exhale, they would say a prayer. And this Jesus prayer was the most famous of the prayers that they would pray. Breathe it in. Lord Jesus Christ. Breathe it out. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Can I encourage you, give this a try. Make this part of your prayer life, particularly when you find yourself holding up that spiritual resume for God or others to see. 
Draw that back in. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or maybe even when you're not, just as you're walking from your desk to the coffee pot, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. As you're sitting down to dinner with your family, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner. Pray this. Take it in. And a caveat here. Uh, there is a way that this can go bad, and I don't want you to go there, where this becomes a prayer where you berate yourself, right? And you walk around feeling like I'm a miserable worm and God hates me and da-da-da. No, no, no. That's not the spirit of this, and that's not what the scriptures teach. The spirit of this is I am a sinner in need of forgiveness, and praise God, I've found that. Jesus has given me all that I need. Pray the Jesus prayer. Uh, one more, friends. One more. So self-righteousness, in addition to thriving on comparison, in addition to praying its accomplishments, self-righteousness sees labels rather than people. Sees labels rather than people. And this line from the Pharisee is so instructive where he says, thank you, God, I'm not like these other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, taxmen. Right? I would suggest to you, the Pharisee isn't really seeing the people. He's just created labels for them, and now he's seeing that. He sees these classes, these categories, that he has divided people up into. And friends, the way that this entraps us, the way that it, it causes us to be entrenched in our self-righteousness, is that when we're looking at labels instead of people, the labels do the separating for you. You don't have to do the hard work of actually looking at that person and seeing who they are. You don't have to think about them being a person made in the image of God. All you see is the label, and the label tells you in an instant, okay, I can disregard that person. They're not important to me because they are just this. And we fill in the blank. It's easy to do. Here's a real-time story. This is me last night. <clears throat> so... Uh, my daughter, Abby, she, she's a music kid, loves music, and uh, turns out here in this last year, she's kind of gotten into the Smashing Pumpkins. <laughs> and, you know, I went to college in the 90s, so this is kind of exciting for me, right? I was, I was all grungy and wearing my flannel, and, you know, Smashing Pumpkins was among those I'm listening to. And, uh, and so uh, last night, Smashing Pumpkins was playing a show on the beach in Redondo Beach, and it was this huge festival, and we didn't want to go to the whole thing, but she was like, hey, you know, can we like walk around it and see if we can catch a little bit of at least hearing Smashing Pumpkins? So it's like, yeah. So we go down there. She was actually wearing one of my flannels from the 90s. How fun is that? <clears throat> and so we're down there, and we're doing the thing, and it was, it was great. They were super good. We actually we had a great spot um, to be able to, to catch the show. But this being kind of an all-weekend-long music festival. It's a little different than some concerts where, uh, where people are there all day and they have all day to get smashed. <laughs> so by the time it's, you know, closing act for the day, everybody walking around is just hammered, just drunk, and, you know, there's marijuana everywhere, and, you know, it was, it was a hot mess. And after, after an hour or more of this, uh, you know, you've got got all these folks going by and they're just super inebriated and we're we're at our spot uh, kind of up against this fence watching the show and uh, and this guy comes up to me and and he's all 
hey man, and he's super drunk. So hey man, bet you $100 that I can't, I can't jump up on top of this fence and sit on it and cheer for the show. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I was like, uh, yeah, I don't want to bet you. And, um, and, and he's like, what, why? I said, like, well, I think you can probably do it, and I don't want to give you 100 bucks. <laughs> and, um, and he was really insulted, right? He's like, ah, of course I can do it. You know, and I'm like, I know, that's why I'm not going to bet you $100. And he was getting kind of agitated. For a brief second, I was like, I'm going to have to fight this guy because he's, he wants to jump on the fence. But, but that passed. He kind of moved his attention back to the fence. And, oh, and then he, he turns to me, he's all, hey, do you see any police around? And I was all, yeah, I see like six. <laughs> And he's like, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. And so he does it. He jumps up on the fence and does his thing. But, um, but kind of the whole night was, was enjoying the company of, of fellows like this one, yes? And, um, and I, I was thinking about it this morning, reflecting back on the show, but there came a point in the night where I wasn't really seeing people anymore. It was like, oh, drunk guy, drunk guy, high girl, drunk idiot, drunk. You know, it's all I'm seeing is the labels passing by. I'm no longer seeing the people. Does that make sense? Can you feel that? It, it doesn't take very much, friends. It doesn't take very much for us to stop seeing the person and instead see the category, see the group that we've put them in. And then we judge them based on that grouping rather than on who they are. You know, and I, I wrote this earlier in the week before, before the killings yesterday, but, um, you know, I, I'm so grateful for our renewed focus on racism, both personal and systemic, over these last couple of years. I think, by and large, it's such an important thing for our society and certainly an important thing for the church. But I, I think that one area where we're getting this wrong is in the area of labeling and stereotyping. And I think in some ways we've regressed in this, where, um, where I think a previous generation, or certainly at least when I was growing up, I mean, stereotyping uh, was, was seen as a really kind of wicked part of racism, uh, where we would see a person, we would, we would just kind of group them in based on their race or whatever. We worked really hard not to do so. Uh, but in some ways now it's becoming acceptable again. And not just for those who are racist, but even for some who would consider themselves not racist or anti-racist. There's a tendency to classify, to group, to label, to categorize, and to say, okay, well, you know, all black people are this way. Or all Asian people are this way. Or all Latinos are this way. Or all white people are this way. And it bleeds over, of course, into other areas too. Oh, well, you know, red state people, they're this way. Blue state people, they're this way. That person, oh, she's a Karen. You know what Karens are like. We've come to justify labeling in a way that I think is a step backwards. And I think that we should be very cautious of. Because this lends itself to self-righteousness. And the labels, too. Part of the problem with the, the labels is, and what makes them dangerous is that they are lazy and that they lie to us. Because when we actually are in relationship with a person, we know that person doesn't conform to half the stereotypes that might be applied to them. 
people do not actually work that way. Uh, and it, it's important that we work to see the person and not just the label that we have assigned to them. Uh, there's a story that's told about Pablo Picasso. And are you familiar with the art of Picasso? Uh, if you're not, he was, he was very, very abstract, right? I should have brought like a picture to throw up on the screens if we can look at it. But he would paint a picture, say, of a, a woman coming down a staircase. And it's super abstract, meaning that like, here's her face, but her nose is over here where the ear should be, and the ear is down here. And, and uh, kind of the method of the madness in the art is you're deconstructing what the person actually looks like and whatnot. So uh, very abstract, and you can't always even tell the difference between objects. But an interesting thing happened in Picasso's life later on in his career, where he fell in love with a woman named Eva. And as he tried to paint pictures of Eva, and he's doing his normal abstract thing, he couldn't, he couldn't quite pull it off. The pictures ended up looking far more, the paintings, far more realistic than most of his paintings. And in one of them, he even ended up writing across it her name, Eva. And to the best of my knowledge, it's the only painting where he ever put a person's name on it. But the more that he saw her, the less easy it was for him to paint her in an abstract sort of way. Friends, when we really see another person, it prevents us from being able to just put them in a category and leave them there. And I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus wants that for us. He wants us to be people who see people, not just labels, not just robbers, <laughs> evildoers, tax collectors, drunks, drunk idiots. That was my favorite from last night. Um, or for that matter, to look at those around us and say, oh, that's, that's a gossip. That person's a liar. That person's a slut. That person is gay. That person's racist. They're not labels, people. They're people made in the image of God. Whatever their particular struggle is, they're a person made in the image of God. And you and I, as image bearers, are walking around with our own struggles, too. Self-righteousness reduces people to labels when we should be seeing people as fellow strugglers loved by God. Here's our third practice. Third practice for the morning is this. It's the practice of listening to understand. Listening to understand. This is a practice to help us defeat self-righteousness in our lives, to see the person and not just the label that we would assign to them. And the understanding part is really important here. By, by listen to understand, I'm contrasting that with listening to rebut. Right? You ever do this? Where you're listening to somebody, but it's just so that when they get done saying what they're saying, you can tell them the ways that they're wrong. Listening to rebut, or listening because we want to speak, and so we let them go first, and while they're talking, we don't really hear them, we just think about the thing we're going to say, and then we say the thing. Or listening to convince that person. 
Uh, there, there's places for challenging one another in our dialogue, but I'm talking about this as a spiritual discipline, just listening to understand. Just sitting down, preferably with somebody who is in some way different from you, and preferably sitting down with them over coffee or over food, having fellowship at a table, and just listening to who they are. Hopes, fears, desires, wishes, where they come from, how that shaped them. Listening to understand. And the way that this discipline works in our lives is the more we do this and the more people we expose ourselves to in this way, the more we break down this tendency to see a label instead of a person. Because it's almost like each, each person is different from you. Each person that you get to actually know and hear and understand blows up a little bit more the myth of this label that you've assigned to them. This is a spiritual practice, friends. To look in the eyeballs of another image bearer and say, who are you? Tell me. And to listen to understand. Uh, Brene Brown has a wonderful saying. She says, it's hard to hate people up close. Once we know, it gets more difficult to assign that label. Well, friends, the passage ends with this. Jesus con concludes with this powerful truth. He says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, take this away. As we bring this message in for a landing, take this away. That Jesus stands ready to meet you in your attempts at humility. If you are moving in the direction of humility, he will meet you there, and he will exalt you. You don't have to worry about exalting yourself. And conversely, if we're always trying to exalt ourselves, we find ourselves fighting God, and that's just no good. Uh, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As we respond in worship this morning, uh, I'm going to invite you to take a, a couple of minutes here, and we're just going to be silent for a couple of minutes. And just take those minutes and pray. And just ask this question, God, what would you be stirring me to do in response to this message? What would you have me do in response to this text? Quietly pray, quietly listen. And then in a couple minutes, uh, we're going to come together and take communion. Uh, we're going to be prayed for. Anyone who'd like to be prayed for can go at that time. In the back, we'll be praying for each other. Uh, and if giving is part of your worship, then you're welcome to give as well. Uh, but let me invite you to be still and let's pray together.